I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. We are nearing the end of our lengthy study through the Gospel of Matthew. Next week, Matt Ritchie will be leading us in our, our final study on the back of your bulletins, of course, as a word about where we're going after that. And I'll let you take a look at that a little bit later. But this morning in Matthew 27, starting at verse 11, we want to follow the portion that we looked at last week as Matthew takes us on the journey toward the cross. We saw last week what we called God's answer for true guilt and deep regret. And I was grateful, have been grateful this week for interaction with some of you on that because life does bring its regrets, doesn't it? Some things that involve... Um, culpability on our part and sometimes things that just wish we had a do-over on. But God's answer for true guilt and deep regret, as we saw last week, is always the cross of Jesus, the gospel. It's the gospel. There's no other answer. Uh, we mentioned last week that sometimes in our, in our efforts to make up, we, we make all kinds of promises to try harder or do better, we, we, we think. Um, we try to make up for things. And... Um, all of those are in vain. Well, today we come to a portion of the text, again, that is equally sobering to last week because this week we walk with Jesus, that final step toward the cross. And Matthew's gospel, as with the other gospels that emphasize different things, Matthew's gospel just seems to, to, to drive home um, the mocking voices that are in the face, so to speak, of the Son of God as he goes to the cross. Well, we're going to pray together, and uh, then we're going to read the text, and I'll comment on how we're going to lay this out in a minute. But I just, I just long for us to, to ask God's help here as we come to his word. So pray with me, if you would, please. Our Father, there can be no greater study for any of us than to come together to the cross of Jesus, not only to see what happened, but to understand in, in greater measure why it happened. And for all of this, we so need your help. Uh, we come to the word of God, not as to any other uh, book of human origin, and so aware of our profound need for you to help us to understand and to believe. Our Father, we, we chase those things in vain on our own. And so, Spirit of God, would you use your word today, as only you can do, to open blind eyes, deaf ears, to hear the gospel, to understand it. This is really our greatest need. So, Father, we trust you now in the preaching of your word. Help us. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, there on your study sheet, of course, you have words of review, as I alluded to a moment ago, a little paragraph about what it is we're looking at today. But if you look at your study sheet, you see that my comments are going to be under two different headings, both of which are titled by verses from the Bible. That first one on the front uh, side of the page, uh, a part of John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And in that part of, of our study this morning, verses 11 to 31, we'll take a look at Jesus heading, heading toward the cross. And then on the back of your sheet, another section under the heading that God may be just and the justifier 
of course, uh, we'll complete that. That's from Romans chapter 3. And there we'll look a little more at the meaning of this. What is the meaning of this? The, the death of Jesus. What is this all about? What is it that we must understand and believe in order to be forgiven by God? What happened to our sin? So Matthew 27 then, I want to read those texts under those headings, and I'm going to focus myself on certain things in each setting. A lot of other things I'll go quickly over, uh, just because reams have been written about all of this, and to to try to, to, to cover it all is certainly impossible. But Matthew 27 then, I want to read verses 11 to 31. We hear God's word together. Matthew says this, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the elders of the governor took, or sorry, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And I will stop there. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his unique son, his only begotten son, This journey to the cross, as you know, is part of Matthew's gospel where the the narrative slows. Matthew has hurried through sermons and hurried through activity and movement in one part of the land of Israel to another. 
But here he slows down and he wants us to hear. He wants us to feel. There are visceral elements in this text that are intended to get the reader to pay attention, to feel, to sense the injustice. Some things are repeated. And we are right to, to slow and to try to pick it up. Now, Matthew is hoping we'll catch certain clues, cues along the way. Uh, among them, he says it twice, verse 12 and then verse 14, he comments on the silence of Jesus before his accusers. Uh, as I mentioned on your study sheet here, just in that parenthetical note, Isaiah 53 makes reference to this. Isaiah 53 will reference a little later on that song of the suffering servant in the prophet Isaiah. Twice we're told that he would stand before his accusers and be silent like a lamb led to slaughter. So Jesus would be. The whole discussion of Barabbas, of course, is is, um, weighted Barabbas, a notorious criminal, some have suggested perhaps a Jewish patriot. Think about this, a lot of of intrigue captured in this text. Uh, We've commented before, one of Jesus' disciples was Simon the Zealot. And um, that would be like, uh, uh, well, perhaps an ultra-right-wing person today politically. Okay, Uh, A zealot was one, uh, in the classic sense, um, a zealot was, was a person typically who had a, a sword in his robe and had taken an oath, typically, that if he got alone with the Roman soldier, you know, take him out, take him out back. And, you know, one of you comes out, it's not him. So the zealots were, were, were known for this sort of thing. They were patriots, some would say. And Barabbas, to be known as a murderer, an insurrectionist, against whom was he committing insurrection? Well, possibly, you know, Rome, which would, it, it, wouldn't that make him one of the good guys? Well, I don't know. Guilty, though, guilty, as Rome would see him uh, deserving of death, as a judge would pronounce it. And so here the contrast is set up between Jesus, the miracle worker, son of God, savior, the preacher, the healer, and a criminal. Guilty? innocent and in what anyone would recognize as a gross miscarriage of justice the one who is guilty is freed and the one who is innocent is condemned we're intended to be caught by that now Pilate seems to come out of nowhere if you watch the way the the narrative unfolds all of a sudden Pilate or verse 11 Jesus stands before the governor the governor, the governor, the governor, and then you see his name. We're not told in the, in the text who he is. Uh, a lot has been written about this. I won't try to capture all of it, except these few comments. Again, looking at your study sheet with you. A politically vulnerable leader facing a tough assignment. What I mean by that is this. Pilate was in charge of a particular area. He was a Roman guy. But it was a tough assignment because it, that area over which he was the leader was known for a lot of turmoil and unrest. And Pilate was supposed to, if he's going to do anything, keep order for goodness sakes. Well, that's a little bit of a problem when there's a makings of a riot take, you know, going on here in front of him. But, but just maintain some sense of, I mean, keep the people under your thumb. Come on. Politically vulnerable. 
uh, as we'll see in a moment, uh, my goodness sakes, the demands in front of him, religious leaders calling for this exchange to free Barabbas and crucify Jesus. And then, oh my goodness, we're introduced to his wife. Gentlemen, your wife sends a message to you saying, let the guy go. What's a man to do? Now, Pilate's wife, what's with the dream? How did she know he was a righteous man? She says, I've suffered much in a dream. From where did that dream come? Interesting, uh, the Coptic church, the Egyptian church, historically, going back, uh, took her to be, Pilate's wife, a true believer, and, and have uh, named her a saint, one to whom uh, a person might pray, if you don't believe in praying to Jesus. Well, uh, Pilate's wife, interesting. We don't know much about her. But I mentioned here, Pilate's a politically vulnerable leader, easier to wash his hands. I want to reference uh, Matthew, or sorry, John's gospel. There's a paragraph here, I think, that highlights Pilate's um, vulnerability and the, the tight spot he's in. I just want to read and mention it there in your text, from, uh, John 19, 12 through 16. You kind of see it in a little more living color as John tells the story. It says this, from now on, Pilate sought to release him, that is Jesus, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. And I want you to watch for that, that, that um, the potential accusations that the crowd would make against, against Pilate if he doesn't do what they want, okay? If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself the king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on a judgment seat uh, on a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. It's the day of preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour. He says to the Jews, behold your king. They cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we, we have no king but Caesar. And let me just tell you something. That's a bunch of nonsense. That's political schmoozing at its best. The Jewish people did not think highly of Caesar. They'd like to throw the bum out too. They want to get rid of the Romans. For them to stand in front of Caesar and say, oh, you know, we're all about him, is a bunch of nonsense. But they'll declare allegiance to anybody to get rid of Jesus. Nobody like that around today, of course, who would use politics to hide behind their own agenda. Certainly not. Well, that's what's going on. We have no king but Caesar. And, of course, the implication throughout the whole paragraph is, you know, if you don't do what we want, we're going to go above you. We're going to go around. We're going to tell your boss that we were just trying to be good Roman subjects. And you guys, I mean, look at this guy. Now, it says in Matthew when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, that a riot was starting. Okay, Matthew's core, or sorry, Pilate's core value. What is it? Keep the peace at all costs. Let's just settle down. You want to, you want to crucify this guy? You call it a, a rabbi, a teacher, a king? Fine. Just be quiet. Isn't that great? And so Jesus goes. There's Pilate. Now, Verses 27 to 31, if you're into literary things, some of you like literary notations and genres and, uh, and things. Well, I'm going to just give you a little one here. Verses 27 to 31 appear to be what's called a chiasm. A chiasm is a, a poetically arranged paragraph. Let me explain this a little bit. We're, we're familiar with certain 
uh, forms of literature and poetry. Uh, a limerick, for example, follows a certain rhyme and meter, doesn't it? Flea and a fly and a flu. I have, come on, I've got a few. So there are, there are certain forms. Roses are red, violets are blue, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. There. Well, a chiasm follows a, a certain order. Not so much by, by uh, rhyming words and so on, but you, you could think of it like a, a, a V on its side. That is, it begins somewhere, leads to a main point, and then by repeating those same elements, kind of backs right away from it. It's like a crescendo. And so here, you have the soldiers doing something with Jesus, taking him somewhere, and then you have something with a robe. They put a robe on him, and then a crown of thorns put on his head, and then the, the, the main element, the crescendo, is them mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then it reverses the order. Then they hit him on the head, and then they take off the robe, and then they lead him away. So it's, it's like building up, and it, right at the middle, it would seem, if indeed that's a, a true chiasm, and it sure looks like it, that the, that the main point, that element that Matthew's trying to say, do you see this? Does this make you indignant? Does it make your skin crawl? What is it? It's them, it's them mocking the king of kings. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. Their creator, the one who, who gave them the privilege of getting up that morning, so to speak. He's the, the one who's keeping their heart beating. And they're mocking him. Are you kidding? Do you have any idea who you're addressing? Well, no, is the answer. And the indignity of it all, Matthew's wanting you to see it. Can you imagine them saying? Now, uh, he notes, Matthew does in verse 27, the whole battalion, and as I have in your study sheet, a whole battalion could be, if it was, it was a full battalion, could be as many as 600, 600 people who, who, who are coming and mocking Jesus, putting a, a reed in his hand like a scepter. Uh, what is the purpose of all this? Uh, they have permission to take him away and crucify him. But just like a cat plays with a mouse before lunch, so it appears the soldiers are toying with Jesus for their own fun, bloodlust, and then they lead him away to crucify him. Wow. I'm going to read the next section, 32 to 66 under that next heading. God so loved the world that he gave. So, verse 32. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled the man to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. That would be some kind of a narcotic, something it would appear to, to, to dull the pain, and Jesus, knowing that, said, no, I want, to, I want to walk into this with all my faculties. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land till the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the the, the veil, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tomb after, tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. He rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as as you can. So they went, made the tomb secure by sealing the stone, setting a guard. So chapter 27 ends with the body of Jesus in a borrowed tomb, the stone rolled in front, and the mark of Rome, that's sealing. It doesn't mean it was glued shut. It means that it was sealed, that his had a wax seal with the mark of of Rome on it, which would indicate to anyone coming, if you mess with this seal, all the wrath of Rome will come on you. That was the idea behind sealing the tomb. We look back toward the beginning of that particular section, verse 32, you find Jesus weakened by the scourging and certainly the blood loss, unable to carry his cross, And Simon of Cyrene, as the one who is a passerby, pressed into service to carry the cross. Compelled, the text says. We don't know a lot about Simon. Supposition, of course, is that either now or later, that he or his family or and his family in some way become followers of Jesus. There's speculation about that. That's what it is. 
in part based on the fact that in Mark's gospel, uh, Mark references his kids. He talks about Simon of Cyrene, the father of Rufus and Alexander. Oh, why would you mention the names of his kids if nobody knows who it is? So perhaps an, an indication that at least with Mark's audience, there would be some who'd say, oh, oh, yeah, 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 I know those guys. No, oh, they're dad. Uh, perhaps, perhaps, uh, supposition. Simon pressed into service to carry the cross. Little is really said in this text about the act of crucifying. When we think about that, we quickly talk about the nails, the placement of the cross, and the ground, and so on. Matthew says very little about that. In fact, the bigger part of this paragraph about the crucifixion, as with the previous section, is about the mocking. Those small people who stand in front of Jesus and uh, seek to cause him even additional misery. And then verse 45. From the sixth hour till the ninth hour, darkness over all the land. Three hours as Jesus hung on that cross. Sometimes in our mind's eye, we picture the cross on a, you know, raised far up. My understanding is that it was less likely that the cross was 15 feet tall and more likely that it was closer to the ground. Many times those crucified were just off the ground. Perhaps so with Jesus, letting the mocking be a lot closer to his face than yelling at somebody up further. But three hours, darkness. Darkness, indicative of judgment. The prophets often speak about darkness, thick darkness. If you read the, the, the uh, book of Exodus, of course, uh, the plagues of Egypt, one of them is darkness. The scripture there is thick darkness, darkness that can be felt. Imagine, how dark is that? Well, in this case, darkness over the land. Those descriptors are not here, they're elsewhere. Three hours during which Jesus, as he cries out, is forsaken. Theologians have tried to to express this. All admit to the inability to put words to it. What is it that would cause Jesus to feel, in fact, to be forsaken. Uh, We talk about the father turning his back on the son, Uh, not a a phrase from the Bible, but we're trying to, we try to capture what's taking place as the guilt of the world is placed on his shoulders. Three hours suspended by nails, mocking, darkness, darkness, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I give you on your study sheet a couple of texts that describe this. Peter later saying, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That's what was going on. My guilt and yours on his shoulders. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to say a word about this, uh, just a, a, a theological element that I, uh, if you are 
have a bent toward wrestling through theology, and on some level, every Christian should. Because to understand the cross is necessary for you to be saved, to be forgiven by God. There, there's, a de- there's a need to understand. And, and I'd like you to think about this element with me here. And I'll try, to, I'll try to nuance it correctly, and you'll understand what I'm after. But there is a sense in which, as Jesus died on the cross, that there was a paying for my sin, your sin, her sin, their sin, and all around. Sometimes we, we capture that element by thinking on a personal level. So that lie I told in sixth grade, there was that extra stroke of the lash and that other thing I did over here and, and again and again and, and think of how much pain I caused Jesus. And I wouldn't want to, to back too far away from that except with this clarification. I, I believe we can so look at the cross as manward, my sin, my sin, my sin, my sin, that we, can, that we can miss some of what's taking place. That is the Godward nature of the atonement. And this, I would look at the word that we'll see in a moment as we'll go to Romans chapter three in a minute or so. The word propitiation, that is when Jesus died on the cross, he was he was not only paying for my sin, your sin, and so on, an individual, yes, I get that part, but more profoundly, he was drinking the cup of the Father's wrath. It was Godward as he paid the price before Almighty God for the, the wrath of God to be satisfied. There is a Godward element that, that I think is played down. We live in a very... Uh, man-centered, human-centered age. You'll hear it on the radio sometime. Uh, again, don't, don't hear me picking on this too profoundly. I don't want to undermine um, good parts of our theology that when Jesus died on the cross, we say, he thought of me. You, perhaps you've, you've, you've heard that kind of expression. I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, forget it, but almost. Because I believe that as Jesus died on that cross, his gaze was heavenward first the father's wrath satisfied i think it was first godward Uh, i i I think that's a part of the atonement that is often um, maybe set aside as we think about us first i I give you a quote here from charles wesley Um, we remember songs that we learn in our childhood And there is a long, I think, long forgotten verse of the old hymn, And Can It Be? I had to go back to one of the hymnals that I used being when I was raised to find this verse. Every modern hymnal has skipped this verse. And I think I know why. But I give you the first part of it here, or Wesley would write, Tis mystery all, the immortal dies who can explore his strange design in vain he says the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine that's how the verse goes if you can think of the tune of and can it be tis mystery all the immortal dies who can explore his strange design in vain, the firstborn, here's the, here's the puzzling part for the modern reader. In vain, the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths 
of love to, to sound. When we think of sound, what do we think? Well, we think of something auditory. And in the parlance of the day, to sound the depths is to measure how deep it is. An old sailing ship, you take a sounding. You're looking to see how deep it is. Well, unless you're familiar with that, you're going to sing that verse and think somebody's singing something. And it's not about something you listen to. It's measuring. It's measuring how deep the love of God is for you. That's what Wesley was after. In vain, the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine, to, to see the depth of the love of Christ as here on the cross. Thank you, Charles Wesley. I'm going to move over to Romans 3 for a moment. And if you have a Bible there handy, come with me. Romans 3, 21 to 26, uh, some have called one of or the most important paragraph in the whole New Testament. Uh, different people would assess that perhaps differently, I understand. But nonetheless, this paragraph summary of key elements of the gospel, okay? Now, you step into Romans 3 at verse 21, you know that it's following right on the heels of this damning section where Paul describes the sin of the world, yes, yours and mine, concluding with that summary that all the world may be accountable to God, that all our mouths would be closed, no more excuses, none and our mouths would be closed and we'd know our accountability before God. And then he comes the following paragraph to verse 21. And he says, but now, but now, it's like a big turning point. But now, not condemnation, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That is, you can't earn it. You can't make up for it. You can't, you can't on your own effort get any time in God's heaven. Not 30 seconds. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they point to it. That is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who, what, work hard? Try? Give their best efforts? No, to all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is, declared righteous by God. It's a declaration of righteousness. Not making you righteous, you're not. It's a declaration of righteousness by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, there's that big word, that propitiation, a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Oh, pay attention to these lines. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that God may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Folks, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. What is this all about? Well, Paul, the one writing this, wants you to know that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, point to this. They bear witness. This is the point of the gospel. It's the point of the Bible. It's looking toward this act of Jesus on the cross. Verse 23 is probably the verse we're most familiar with here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Indeed, every one of us having mixed, missed God's mark of perfection. Sometimes we look around and we say, well, I'm better than so-and-so. And you may be, and somebody's probably saying that about you. I'm better than them. Uh, 
the point, of course, isn't that you'd find somebody that you're better than. Because all of us fall short of God's standard of perfection. God doesn't call us just to be nice. No, the standard to get into heaven is is perfect. So 99.9% pure doesn't get you into heaven. Can you imagine? I think 99.9 is far nicer than me. A lot more nice than you. I'll pick on you. 99.9%? Not good enough? Well, indeed, no. Perfection? Well, if that's the case, what chance do I have? Unless, unless, unless I can be so identified with one who is 100% that I can get into God's heaven with him. So indeed, Paul says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and and are justified by his grace as a gift. How? How can this be? How can I be declared righteous by God? Well, as a gift by his grace, through what means? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it's Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a satisfaction, his blood satisfying the wrath of a holy God. God's righteous wrath against my sin to be received by faith. Now watch this. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. What is this? What is this? What is this? You're familiar with the Old Testament and you know that in the Old Testament, people brought animal sacrifices, right? The blood of bulls and goats. What was that all about? Well, to, to read, of course, the book of Romans and to read the book of Hebrews, especially, is to learn that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. No, that animal blood that was shed down through the ages didn't take away sin, but it was as if it was covered until one would come who could permanently, finally take away sin. So all the sin covered by those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament went to Jesus on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just covering sin from that moment on. It was sin from the beginning of time. And of course, sin after that. My sin, yours. When Jesus died on the cross, in a sense, the center the center of history, sin of the human race, the wrath of God poured out against, the righteous wrath of God poured that on Jesus, the one who had no sin. Imagine He died in my place. That's the testimony of the Bible. So what then do I bring? What do I bring to the table? I mean, I I try try to be nice. I try to be nice. Is it working? Do you try to be nice? Oh, man. The testimony of Scripture that all my attempts at niceness do not add one thing. Uh, Paul will say, not by works of righteousness that we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we've done. My works do not add to my forgiveness. They should rather be a reflection of the life of one already forgiven. So we, we serve and we love God and serve his purpose in the world, not to earn God's favor, but because we have been recipients of it. So then those two phrases, that God may be just, what is this about? Well, Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sin so that God would indeed be just. What does that mean? Just. I righteous. A righteous judge. Think about this. If somebody committed some atrocious act against you or your family, you'd be indignant and 
long for justice. Suppose that person was arrested and brought before a judge, and suppose the judge then is you sitting in the courtroom in back saying, get, get him, justice. Suppose the judge looked at him and said, you know, you seem like a reasonable person, kind of nice, kind of like you. I tell you what, let's forget the whole thing. What would you do? You'd be blistering mad because you'd be calling for justice. You'd write the letters to the editor, you'd call your congressperson, you would protest, you'd tell everybody, you'd probably put it on social media even, imagine. Because you, your sense of justice would be violated. So for God to be just, our sin had to be fully paid for. And that's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. God is just sin fully paid for. If he had just said, you know what, I'm a nice guy, forget it. No, no, that would be injustice. So when Jesus died on the cross, those hours there, our sin put him there, it is as though God poured out his righteous judgment against sin upon Christ, the Holy One. Jesus paid it all. See? That God may be just. And then the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is that he can declare righteous. He can declare us righteous. Sometimes we think, well, he makes us righteous. Well, actually, he declares us righteous because I am a sinner still. That may be a little known secret. And so are you, by the way. Still a sinner. That God could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the idea behind Romans 3, 21 to 26. Now, I want to go back to Matthew for just a couple things. And then I want to say a word to us about what we do with this. Back to Matthew then. Um, in verse 50, you find Jesus yielding up his spirit. The curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. There's discussion about whether that means the external curtain of the temple or the internal veil that separates the Holy of Holies. Which one is it? A discussion on all of that. I tend to think it's the middle, the, the, the veil inside, the curtain inside separating the holy place from the Holy of Holies. If you study that, uh, that's what I tend to think based on Hebrews. But the idea that the, the curtain of the temple is torn in two, that separation, that wall of separation between a holy God and humans is torn in two from top to bottom. If it was torn by a person, it'd be torn from, from bottom to top. But no, as Jesus died on the cross, that it's like a divine hand came down and said, it's open access to the holy God. Because Jesus in the veil, that is his flesh, paid for our sin. Verse 52 and 53 the tombs are open. Bodies of the saints. Which saints? Do you know? How many? Important saints? Well-known saints? Aunt Martha? Who was it? What did they do? What did they say? Did they come back and talk about heaven? Did they die again? Were they res did they ascend to heaven when Jesus? Do you know the answers to any of those questions? Why not? It's because it's not in the Bible. There, That's a good answer. It's not in the Bible. There's conjecture about all these things. Like I put on your study sheet, some saints were resurrected. Any questions? Well, yes, a lot of them. The only word we have in the whole Bible about this event is right here, those two verses. You can consider that over coffee later on. Huh. I like to go to the burial of Jesus Verse 61, these are important details in the gospel story. 
Jesus placed in a borrowed tomb. Mary Magdalene, the other Mary there, sitting opposite the tomb. Why does Matthew tell us that? I suspect it's because some along the way would say, well, on resurrection morning, the disciples clearly went to the wrong tomb. They found an empty one and went, oh, he's gone. Well, clearly, Matthew's pointing out Mary Magdalene and the other Mary know exactly where he's buried. You can't mess with the ladies. They're not lost. They ask for directions. They know. They know which tomb it is. Russell Moore considers verse 65 one of the funniest little phrases in the whole Bible. Uh, In an ironic sense of funny. Go, make it as secure as you can. Moore pokes at that and says, seriously, folks? You're going to secure a tomb with the Son of God inside. Are you now? So all the power of Rome with a little wax seal and some henchmen out front, seriously, you're going, to, you're going to keep the Son of God inside. Oh, have fun with that. And of course, Russell Moore has fun with that phrase as well. As secure as you can. Okay, how secure is that? Well, not very. As Peter would say later, Acts 2.24, it was not possible for him to be held by death. But I'm jumping ahead. I'm jumping ahead next week. Resurrection. For today, I would like you to think with me about this. When you look at the cross of Jesus, there are some things that should be crystal clear to you. All right? First of all, to be right before a holy God is all about what Jesus did and not at all, as in zero, about how nice you are. Does this make sense? All my iniquities on him were laid. He nailed them all to the tree. Jesus, the debt of my sin fully paid. He paid the ransom for me. It is all of Christ. Jesus' death on the cross satisfied the wrath of the holy God. You can add to this nothing of merit before God. For you to be forgiven by God is to understand and believe that. I am a sinner, bankrupt. I have nothing good to bring. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. It is, to, it is incredibly freeing to understand and believe this. Jesus paid it all. Any, any, any good thing I do isn't to earn a thing. It's because I'm forgiven by God. When I trust Christ as my Savior from sin. That is what the Bible calls you to do. Having heard it, then to believe it and to trust Christ as your sin bearer. The one who pays it all. That's what scripture calls you to do. To say yes, sinner before God. I trust Christ and him alone. Let me ask you, have you done that? Are you trusting Christ today, now as you sit here? Or listen later? Are you trusting Christ as your savior from sin? If not, for goodness sakes, why not? And if it's 95% Jesus in your mind and 5% you, you might as well just put an X through that 5%. No, none of you. It's not about that. It's not about you. It's about what Jesus did. Trust Christ and him alone as your Savior from sin. As you have time, read. Read Isaiah 53. And then I'll say this and we'll be done. 
we, we walk through life with all kinds of stuff. I know we do. Many of you come today with challenges of life, family, relationship, health, finances, you know. The cross of Jesus is a reason for you to never doubt for a minute the love of God for you. Okay? Paul would say in Romans 8, He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? No, God loves you today. And on those days that you're tempted to doubt it, you look to the cross and remember again the love of God for you. Don't you doubt it. I want to pray for us if you'd stand with me. Father, I thank you for this account of the death of Jesus on the cross for us in our place, his atoning death. Our Father, I pray that all in the sound of my voice would would not only hear it, but they'd believe it and rivet their soul to this, the saving death of Jesus, 100% the work of Jesus. Our Father, I thank you for the gospel. So convince our hearts in the area where there's doubt, question, remain. So convince us of the gospel that we would say, yes, it's Jesus. It's all of him. Father, do your work of grace in us, I I pray today. Thank you for the morning. Thank you for these dear people. Point us to Christ. We pray together in his name. Amen.